Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. How is a newly grieving person supposed to know what's normal and what's not normal if we never talk about it? How it messes up your sleep and your eating, how it affects your cognitive abilities, your memory, your reading capacity and comprehension. Like if we don't talk about that stuff, people think they're crazy. They're not crazy, they're grieving, and all of that stuff, it's normal. Welcome to Grief Encounters with me, Sasha Hamrog. And I'm Venetia Quick. We're a weekly podcast that looks at an issue that affects us all, and yet remains so difficult to talk about. We'll be chatting to guests from all walks of life on the subject of death and all that comes with it. Our main aim is to motivate, comfort, and create a modern space for people to share their own experiences. Could you think of someone that could benefit in listening? Tell them about Grief Encounters out every single Tuesday. Our guest today is a writer, speaker and grief advocate whose book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, is seen as one of the staples of grief literature over the past 20 years. Megan Devine's journey with grief began 10 years ago with a deep and tragic loss that changed the course of her personal and professional life forever. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Obviously... We, we share a lot of your content on our platforms because you speak so powerfully about grief. Can you tell us a little bit about your own experience and kind of what led you to want to help people in this area? Um, I also want to say back, I am so thrilled to be with you. Ireland has such a, such a soft spot in my heart. We don't need to go into that one, but yeah. um, I'm really glad to be here with you. Thank you. I've been doing this work in the grief world for... I would say nine years, even though my loss happened 10 years ago, that that first year or two, I didn't care at all Mm. about helping other people. I'd been a psychotherapist in private practice for about 15 or so years, and I was getting tired of sitting and listening. I remember telling my partner that I was tired of being in the pain business. So we had been talking together about reorganizing our lives so that I could do something different and kind of figure out what was next for me. But before we had a chance to do that, Matt died in an accident. And I have to... And even... Oh, go ahead. No, I just I have to imagine that even in the place you were at at the time that that, that like it must have been just such a catastrophic change in in every way for your life. Yeah, completely. The entire world that I knew dissolved in that instant. And I think this is one of the tricky things. You know, people looked at me as a therapist and as a writer and they were like, "You got this. Mm. No big deal." Maybe not no big deal, but like you have skills here. And and what I think people don't understand from the outside is that none of those skills matter. You can't be adequately prepared for the loss of someone you love, especially in sort of extra dramatic circumstances. Mm-hmm. That's not something you can be ready for. And so a lot of the people, both professionally and personally, looked at me in those first days and weeks and months after Matt died and said, you're going to become such a powerful therapist. 
you're going to turn this around and make it into a gift for so many people. And that felt really offensive yeah. to me, as though his life were a fair trade for me being a super good therapist. So understandably, I was kind of like, well, fuck that, right? Like, I'm not, <laughs> no. Uh, but, you know, I, I have a really deep sense of responsibility. Mm. And the way that I was treated in the days and weeks and months after Matt died, the horribly unhelpful at best things that I heard from people who did have the best of intentions, seeing my new friends in the widowed or sudden death community, seeing the things that they were told about their losses. I knew that I could do something about that. I knew that I could speak to that. That's, that's one superpower I feel like I came in with is I can be articulate. <laughs> and so I, I just, I felt that there was such deep pain and suffering that didn't need to happen if people could be helped to understand what it's really like to be a grieving person. The things that yeah. you have done so brilliantly is to not only support the the people grieving, but to support the people around them in the way that we sort of share information now. But so by sharing, say, some of the powerful posts that you write or the videos that have been created in the name of it, and then others seeing those videos and, and then changing their behavior or their pattern or their language because they're, yeah. they're learning. I mean, there's really no words for how powerful that actually is. I mean, as an educator, it's just the best thing in the world. There's a little animation, which I'm guessing you've seen that how to help a grieving friends yeah. animation. And that little video has been viewed at the time that we're speaking over 23 million times. Oh, my God. That's phenomenal for a topic that most people say they don't want to talk about. My favorite parts of seeing the way that that video is, is shared is people who say, I learned something from this. My extra, extra favorites are the ones where you can see that they posted it on a friend's wall and said, I learned something here and I haven't been supporting you in the best way. I'm sorry. And I'm going to do better. Wow. Let's talk about that video a little bit, because I know that when I shared it right away, as I often do with your content, many people liked it and shared it on my page. And the learnings that are in it are very, very important about letting people be sad. And I know you're quite passionate about talking about that and that we have to deal with being uncomfortable. Sometimes being uncomfortable is part of the process. Can you just chat a little bit about what that video really is all about? Sure. So I, I really think the main job of a support person is to tolerate their own helplessness, right? We look at somebody in pain and we think our job is to make it better because that's that's what we got taught to do, right? As therapists, but also as just regular old humans, we think it's our job to cheer somebody up. All of our books, all of our media, all of our movies, their, you know, pop psychology, your job is to not let somebody be sad. And that's such a deep disservice because that's not usually what we need when we're having any kind of feeling. Mm. So that animation, I wanted to make something adorable, because how do you get people to talk about difficult things? You make it adorable. Um, I wanted to make something adorable. And I also wanted to make it really simple. It's sort of a deceiving little animation, because while the practices and the principles that I'm talking about in that animation are very simple, they aren't easy. It's not easy to let somebody you care about be sad. It's hard to watch somebody be in pain. And so the storyline of that little three and a half minute movie is one, acknowledging that this is hard work, that, you know, it's not your fault that you don't know how to do this. It is your responsibility, though, if you do have those good intentions, it's your responsibility to learn how to do this better mm -hmm. so that you can really deliver the love and support that you most intend. So that, you know, our, our rabbit, our rainbow pooping rabbit <laughs> and our, and the little bear there, like they're, they're, illustrating what happens 
when with our best intentions, we say all the wrong things and how that sort of leaves our grieving friend or family member in the dark by themselves waiting to be heard. That's something you talk about being seen and how important being seen because it's such an isolating experience. I want to just ask you a question Um, in our podcast and the people we've met. It comes up a lot. When I lost my dad, I felt quite a support around me for a, for a, a quite some time. But my mom died then a couple of years later, and, and I felt like it almost became like just too much for people. They couldn't take mm-hmm. on that this was happening again. Mm-hmm. And I, I lost some friendships, which at the time when you've already lost the closest person to you is, is, is almost impossible to, to handle. And it was due to exactly what you're talking about, a, a difficulty in understanding each other and, and communicating through this extremely difficult thing. Do you think those friendships and relationships can be repaired? I don't know. I mean, I I think it depends on so many things. So grief absolutely rearranges your friendships. You know, some relationships you thought would always be there crack and they fall away. And some people you didn't realize could be amazing allies step into the amazing allies. And it's one of the truly sucky secondary losses. You don't have the people you thought you would have. Mm. So I think this sort of comes down to often like we look to the grieving person and we say, you have to speak up. You have to tell your friends and your family members how to best support you. And that's really unfair. right? I mean, we, I don't know if you have this phrase, emotional labor, right? Mm. Like you don't ask a person who's actively in pain to do the emotional labor of educating you on what they need. One, they may not know what they need. And two, even if they do, it's really hard to access that part of the mind that can form sentences and be really clear. I mean, think about in normal non-grief life, how challenging it is to have conversations with your, your friends or your partner to say, here's what's actually going on and here's what I need from you. Are you willing to give me that? Who does that? I mean, we can't even do that when we're not grieving. How can we? Exactly. <laughs> right? Like these are, those are high level skills just in normal everyday life. And so if you then look at your grieving person and say, it's your fault that I don't know how to support you. So you need to step up and use your words and tell me what you need. No, that's not going to happen. And it is each person's responsibility to speak up and say, this isn't working for me. Here's what I might need you to do differently. Sure. We can can give each person the self-responsibility to speak up and say that. But we live in a real world where even in the best of circumstances, we don't do that very well. A much better approach for a friend or family member who's feeling frustrated or helpless is to say, I don't really know how to help you. I love you enough to be awkward and dumb about it, but I could use a little feedback from you. And then you can ask a question like, does it help when I leave you silly songs on your voicemail trying to cheer you up or does that feel worse? Give me a clue, Mm. right? Your effort and your awkwardness are gold, right? I think we need to step out of that idea that somebody owes you the manual to how to help them or that your friends and family are going to be perfect at this. Nobody's going to win in that situation. No. And I think the awkwardness and the uncomfortableness, you actually evolve so much when you learn how to sit in those places. You also talk a lot about practical things, especially I think in those early stages of grief that I think people find very, very helpful from you in particular, having a shower, going outside. And I know somebody listening to this who maybe hasn't lost someone might think that that sounds really weird. But that yeah. is that is what people need to hear um, sometimes. Like, get up and just go in the shower and you might feel a little bit better in five minutes. You're not going to feel any way like you did before the person died, but the cloud might lift for that five minutes you're in the shower. Can you talk a little bit about those things, those practical things that do make quite a big difference? Yeah, I love that you said that, that like to the outside world, it's like, what are you talking about? Like, how hard is it to take a shower? Well, 
when you have a 10-ton elephant sitting on your chest, the slightest movement is difficult. And there's some parallels here with the disability community or the chronic illness community, where from the outside, somebody might look, quote unquote, fine. But the effort to show up and brush your teeth takes a lot more energy than you might recognize or think from the outside. And and grief is like that. I usually talk about like those circuits of energy. If you've got 100 circuits of energy every day, when you lose somebody close, 99 of those circuits of energy are going, what the hell just happened? They're keeping like your autonomic functioning functioning. They're like trying to make sense of a world that suddenly no longer makes sense. That means you have one unit of energy for everything else. Remembering where your keys are, brushing your teeth, putting on pants before you go outside, right? Like there's just not a lot of bandwidth to be a quote unquote functional member of the human race. So in those early days of grief, and I, and I want to do a little sidebar here that early days in air quotes, you get to define what's early for you. Again, the outside world might be like, early, that's the first three days. No, that can be like three years. Yeah. So whatever early means for you, things like getting in the shower, it's not going to fix anything. It's not going to make anything suddenly magically better. You're not going to feel good, but you might feel incrementally better. It's those tiny, tiny shifts that we want to look for. Does going outside for a breath of fresh air give you a little bit more peace of being or a little bit more of a settled feeling in your heart? Well, then do more of that. Does taking a shower give you a chance to cry as hard and loud as you need to? Well, then do that, right? I think if we remove the metric of something should feel good or should heal us miraculously, like if we step out of that and we look more towards how can I feel soothed right now? How might I make an incremental change that gives me the slightest bit more peace of being? Or maybe I can just look back and say, I took a shower today. I'm good, right? It's an achievement, though. Like, it really is an an achievement. That's what I'm saying. Like, you deserve a fucking award for that. (laughs) I totally do. I have to tell you something that you're talking about things that that feel good, that help heal the soul a little bit. And I had landed on your website after my mom died in a real Mm -hmm. desperate attempt of looking for anybody that might understand where I was at. And um, you were talking about writing, which is obviously something that's very important to you. So I in turn sat down and I, and I wrote something and then the guardian published it and it was a really Yay. really changed my life and turned my life and it went in a whole other direction in a lot of ways and that's down to me landing on your website which is pretty mm. nuts the power of expression artistic expression written expression musical expression it's obviously something that you feel was important for you? Again, I go back to like my own early days. So I, I've been an artist and a writer forever. And the people who came to me and said, um, you're such a good writer, you're going to turn this into an amazing story. And I'm like, he's not a story. Mm. You know, this, this tendency to reduce things to two dimensions. If you do this, then that will happen. If you write the story, you'll feel better and you'll be healed. Sort of a way for people to respond to pain, right? As long as you find a way to transform it, Um, everything's going to be okay. So I think there's a danger in creative practices of any kind that we use as a prescription. Mm. Do this so that that happens. I think that that really is a disservice to the creative practice. It's a disservice to art. It's a disservice to our minds and our hearts and our needs to express ourselves. If we take that out of the realm of curative and think of it more as telling ourselves the story of what is so that we can acknowledge it, so that we can feel heard, so that we can make a tangible expression of what's on the inside of our lives, 
whether anyone else ever sees it or not, mm. the act of creation is powerful as long as we divorce it from the need to cure something with it. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the thing that happened that was unexpected in my circumstances was I wrote a piece and just from being able to see it, on see it written down was this powerful thing mm-hmm. just to myself, but the people, that the comments yeah. was something that was so staggering because the reason I wrote it was because I felt so alone. And then yeah. there were people saying, I'm here too. And just going back to what you said about being seen and you yeah. know, we're here together and you've created community. Mm-hmm. And community with grief is exceptionally powerful, I think. Do you agree? It really is. And again, it's not curative. Mm. It's not that finding your grief buddies is going to make you feel better and transform things so that you can go to quote unquote normal again. Companionship is how we survive, mm. right? I mean, I love that. You know, you, you write this piece for you and you put it out into the world because stories are important and your story lets other people feel seen. They say, wow, I thought I was the only one. Thank you for sharing this with me. Or they come out to witness you, mm-hmm. right? Like, I see you. I get this. We're in this with you. That companionship is survival. And we're social animals. Without companionship, we die. Mm-hmm. Whether that's an emotional death or a physical death, like without companionship, we die. Without being seen, mm-hmm. we die. How do you survive something unsurvivable? Well, you do it with a posse. You do it with people who say, I'm here and I'm holding your hands and I'm going to sit with you here as long as this takes and I'm listening. If you're looking for a safe haven to express how you feel, share articles, photos and memories of your loved ones, join the Grief Encounters Facebook group, a place for support, compassion and empathy for those grieving. It seems on our podcast, you know, we we spoke to a, a beautiful woman today whose both of her sons committed suicide. We've spoken to a woman whose her children were both murdered by her husband. Unimaginable scenarios, yeah. un- unthinkable grief beyond anything that anyone could really ever imagine. And they do speak about that community that either existed before or existed afterwards to help them survive. Yeah. Can I ask you about Matt? Um, sure. And who he was? I like to say that Matt was half mountain goat. He was <laughs> he was incredible to watch in the world. He was one of those people who was sort of born into a naturally athletic body, mm-hmm. uh, you know, lean and muscly and just like delighted in seeing what his body could do. He could run up the face of waterfalls and hike and do these amazing like gymnastics, yoga things that made it look like he was a Jedi master hovering in the air. Like it was crazy. <laughs> you know, no, no matter like what kind of physical feats or physical fitness I could do, I would always be like, damn, I don't even understand what that is. Mm. Right. With no effort. So he just, he just really delighted in his body out in the world mm. and so kind, also a pain in the ass. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to put a big old rosy glow on this because everybody is a mixed bag. Right. Mm. Um, but Matt truly I'm actually stuck on my the tense of my verb, was or is. Mm. So we'll just use both, was and is, the kindest and most thoughtful person I've ever known. And I know a lot of amazingly kind and thoughtful people. I Go love ahead. that you're saying that he still is an is for you. Um, yeah. Because he still is an is for you. Like, he is in your life. Mm-hmm. Is And that's something maybe people fear a lot, is those t- terms and tenses when someone dies that yeah. they have to start saying they were or they were when you can say that you can say is 
Yeah, there's a cognitive dissonance there, right? Mm. When all of a sudden people start referring to your person in the past tense and you're like, they were just here. What are you talking about? Now suddenly I have to change my entire grammatical structure. That's bizarre. And because we don't talk about grief, people don't know what's normal. Grieving people themselves don't know what's normal. So they're like, I caught myself five years later picking up the phone to go call them. Mm. Well, of course you did. Right? There's there's nothing weird about that. That's normal. And then the outside world is like, she still refers to her partner in the present tense and it's been three months. What's wrong with her? Human. Mm-hmm. Right? So, I mean, I, I think you get to use whatever language you'd like. I think another way this gets tricky, again, when we choose something for ourselves, that's power. When something is chosen for us or prescribed for us, that's crappy. So when somebody says, if I say, I miss my partner, and they say, but they're all around you, that is a dismissive bullshit comment. Yes, it is. Let's think about that, right? When I say, I miss him, and somebody says, but they're all around you, the second part of that sentence, which is very clearly implied is, so don't be so sad. You shouldn't miss him. He's still here. Well, literally, that is not true. (laughs) (laughs) There is a difference between the felt sense of presence, of love. There's a difference between knowing that that love still exists because it absolutely does. But that love, that felt sense cannot take the dog out for a walk when he wakes up at three o'clock in the morning and you have a big meeting in the morning and you just need some sleep. They can't pick up your kid in the bus line. They can't be your emergency contact anymore. There's a weird thing that happens the first time, second time, 15th time. You go to an appointment and you have to change your emergency contact because your emergency contact is dead. That's crazy. And that's the real life of it. Yeah. We definitely don't talk about the real life of it at all. Nope. You know, people... Well, I do. And you do because it's important. (laughs) Because we don't know, like, how how is a newly grieving person supposed to know what's normal and what's not normal if we never talk about it? Mm. If we never talk about how it messes up your sleep and your eating and your ability to make change and your ability, and by change, I mean money, not like make changes in your life, but that too... Um, how it affects your cognitive abilities, your memory, your reading capacity and comprehension. Like if we don't talk about that stuff, people think they're crazy. They're not crazy. They're grieving and all of that stuff as weird and messy and uncomfortable as as it is. It's normal. I think sometimes when you see grief kind of filed under like mental illness or something, Uh or it's treated like mental illness, like genuinely people like you know, I'm really concerned about him or her. Like, it's normal and it's helping no one by continuing that kind of conversation. Yeah, it's not helping anybody. It's not helping grieving people. And it's not helping the people who want to help them, whether that's friends and family or professional. Mm. When we talk about grief as a disease, we are screwing everyone over. Everyone. Like my, my newest favorite phrase for this one, um, it came up in a in a keynote lecture I did a couple of months ago was like the way that we talk about grief, it's like a pass fail for the human heart. Do it correctly and you know, correctly in sarcasm and air quotes there. If you do it correctly, you should be back to normal within just a couple of weeks. And that means you don't talk about your person anymore. All of the photos are put away. You're friendly. You're happy. You're, you know, doing your job well. And nobody ever asked to see you sad, except, you know, maybe if it's just this sort of romantic pastel um, wistful thing that just lasts for a moment before you get back to who you used to be that's if you do it correctly if you don't do it correctly you're still going to be crying about your dead child 
in six weeks. And for the rest of your life, like, it's just... You know, but I mean, that's the thing, like, when you pathologize grief, right now, um, in the States, six weeks is the is the max that you should still be appearing sad. Six weeks. At six weeks, you haven't even finished filing the damn death certificate. No, and it hasn't even really registered for a lot of people. I know a lot of people, you know, I definitely with my mom, I was saying to my husband, I have no idea what's going on, man, because I don't feel anything. And I was like so close with her. I was like, I don't feel anything. I don't feel anything. And he was really nervous for me because I think he was like, it's coming. Mm -hmm. I know it's coming, but I have to just let her do this. And that went on for two full months where I just was kind of operating, not normally, but like, and then when it hit, so like saying six weeks, it hasn't even, for a lot of people, it hasn't even started. I think you bring up another good point too. Can we just touch on it for a second? Yeah, of course. Um, You said you didn't feel anything for the first couple of months. Sometimes people are like, what is going on? I should have more feelings here. I should be really sad. Like humans are complex creatures and you never had to live without your mom before. This was the first and only time your mom died. We have no idea how you're going to respond to that. However you respond is how you respond, right? I think we do that relentless self-inquiry, self-interrogation. What's wrong with me? Because we've internalized the, the cultural messages about grief, too, that it's supposed to look a certain way and last a certain amount of time. You're supposed to cry, rend your garments, be a little bit morose and weepy, but not too much, mm. for a certain amount of time and then be done. And if you don't do that, well, then you're you're in denial, right? Whether we tell ourselves that or people around us tell us that, like, there are so many ways that that faulty understanding of the reality of grief um, affects and infects everybody. This is why it's so important to tell the truth about this stuff so that grieving people understand that however they respond to the loss of someone they love is okay. And so that support people, both professional and personal, have more understanding and more compassion compassion, and more really useful skills with how to respond to such things instead of just flailing around making things worse. How do you feel about the fact that your book has become such an important thing for people and mm-hmm. how it's a modern look at grief, which I think we needed? And does it feel overwhelming at times to have people reaching out to you? I love that book. It's the book that I wish existed when Matt died. I love how fiercely, fiercely committed to the message in that book, um, you know, my, my readers and my students are. I mean, I said earlier, as an educator, looking at the response to that animation, how to help a grieving friend, like there's no better feeling for an educator than to hear people say, I learned something and I'm going to do something different. You asked if I feel ever feel overwhelmed with the amount of people who reach out to me and tell me how the book has affected them. No, I love it. I mean, again, writers in general, writing is a solitary practice for the most part. And you put your words out there and you hope that they land and you hope that they matter. But you don't know unless people tell you. This is why you hear authors go on and on about book reviews, right? Like book reviews are one of the ways that we know whether our work matters and how it matters and what it means to you. Certainly emails and Instagram posts and (laughs) tagging us in things, um, all really good ways. Um, to share the message of, of what what a book means to you. So on behalf of all authors, if you love a piece of work, go tell them, <laughs> right? Because it's, it's important to know it matters to writers, it matters to me. That book has changed people's lives. And again, as an educator, like I couldn't ask for anything better. Um, it's opened conversations for people. It's helped support people 
you know, friends and family members and even clinicians. It's helped them to have better conversations with their friends and family, not just in acute grief, not just in those early days, months, years, um, but also in general in their relationships about how do we talk about pain together? How do we show up for each other? How do we ask for consent and permission before we give advice? The fact that the ripple effect from that book just grows and grows, and it is amazing to watch. What do you think Matt would have thought of your success? Uh, that's always a question. You know, like um, in the early days after he died, people would be like, well, what does Matt say about this? I'm like, I don't fucking know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Matt, um, I kind of always go back to the default with, with this. Um, whatever Matt saw in me um, or whatever, you know, I can hear Matt being like, babe, does it feel true to you? Is it something you enjoy? Is this something that feels like you being of service in the world? Because he knew that all of those things were important to me. I think whatever I do with my life, anything that brings me joy or feels like I'm doing um, beautiful, useful service in the world, he would be thrilled about. Megan, I cannot tell you how honored I was to chat with you. Um, my producer here, mm -hmm. Ian, knows <laughs> how important um, <laughs> this conversation was to me. Thank you so much for joining us and for everything that you do. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me.